Evening Hope. How are we all? We're good? Open up to the book of James as we continue our exposition. If you're visiting or if you're new or if you're looking for a church, you need to know one of the first things about us is that we are a Jesus-preaching, Jesus-worshipping church. Amen? Amen. And we do that. Uh, We see that God's uh, most ordinary way of seeing that done to glorify Christ, edify the saints, see souls saved, and honor the gospel is to just go book by book through the word of God as God has so inspired it through his apostles. So, So we follow it. And so we find ourselves in the book of James. And we have said already that that James is like the the Clint Eastwood of the apostles. He's like the John Wayne of the pastors. He is hard hitting and he is very much uh, an Old Testament writer. We've said continually that the, the prose and the structure and the way that he writes and the tone that he writes in sounds like an Old Testament writer. Of course, he's, he's the first writer in the New Testament time. So, so not only is he chronologically the closest to the Old Testament time, but he's even in his tone and his structure and his language, he speaks in such a way that he sounds like an Old Testament prophet. We're going to see that tonight in our text as we go to chapter 4, and I'll read the first 10 verses, and I pray that you have your own Bible in front of you, and you're enabled to read along with me. The word of the living God says this, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this evening. So we can see already that this is one of those sections that I've been trying to warn you about. And we've, we've seen that as we're going through, this is one of those sections, one of those parts when James does what we've affectionately called going Old Testament. He just rips out some of the most brutal and, 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 and vicious rebukes and exhortations that he can pick up, like some of those Old Testament prophets come to pronounce woe and judgment on the people of God, so-called, though who are living in rebellion and sin. And he pulls no punches as he delivers to them this text through what he has said in these heavy-hitting 10 verses. He's speaking of the whoredom or the adultery. There are harsher words biblical words in scripture that we could use if there wasn't so many little minds and little ears among us this evening, but James calls it what the Old Testament called it, adultery, whoredom. The spiritual adultery against our God is those who allow their inner sins, though unmortified and unkilled, to ravage the church. There's not a single parent in the world that has had to teach their kids how to snatch 
how to keep and how to be selfish, how to get into fights when another teenager is in your room, how to take things personally and let emotions get the best of you. There is, there is, I, you just wouldn't believe the sort of questions that you get as a pastor. Some of them are just straight out weird, not sinful, just really weird. New converts just have the strangest of questions and maybe we'll fill a book of the memoirs one day just for a very good laugh at our own expense. We've all been there. Uh, but, but a lot of the things, you know, not only are some weird and funny and, and, uh, and magical, but, but there's also, it just touches everything. The sort of questions that pastors get touch every, every section of life and, and, and they get asked all sorts of things. Uh, how, do I, uh, how do I deal with this? How do I not take this personally? How do I fight this sin? What do I do in this relationship? How should I think about this responsibility? What should I think about this law, this rule, this struggle, this trial? There is questions that go all over the map and yet one question a parent has never had to struggle with and a pastor has never been set as they go down for coffee or maybe in the pastor's study, you sit across with a pastor. No pastor has ever had to feel the question, how do I take things more personally? How do I allow the, the, the sins and the passions and the wants of my heart to affect my relationships? How do, I, how do I get offended when somebody makes a decision at church or in the ministry or, or among our friendship groups or says something at fellowship group and, and I get offended? What's the best way to let that bleed out into my relationships and my decisions? No pastor needs to be asked that because that, just like with the child, comes absolutely naturally to us all. No one has to be trained how to take things personally, get offended, speak with ungentleness, speak in such a way that offends people, or choose to get offended when you probably couldn't, uh, should have not done so. This is natural to being human beings. We, are, we have this nature inside of us, what, Paul, what James here will call in verse 1 through 2, the inner desires and passions and lusts of the human heart. <clears throat> This is what causes quarrels and fights among them. The external quarrels, the external fights among Christians, among a church, the divisions that happen, the church splits that occur, happen because the inner war, the inner struggle, the inner quarrels of sin against righteousness was not fought, and therefore those quarrelsome desires, lusts, and passions bleed out into the people of God. As, as we've gone through James, there is no doubt, and I hope this has been the case, there's been no section or no exhortation or rebuke that any one of us has heard that we haven't had to do at least a little bit of self-assessment on that we haven't at least had to start asking ourselves, yeah, am, am I the sort of person who chapter one grumbles under trials and fails to have rock solid faith? Uh, am I the sort of person who in chapter two has partiality towards the poor and prefers the company of the rich and influential? Uh, of course, am, am I the type, as chapter two ended out for us, am I the type who makes excuse for not working because I've got so much faith? Am, am I that type of person? Chapter three, do I uh, fail to bridle my tongue? Am I, is my language too unkempt and is it doing damage and setting the course of my life on fire because of the trouble that my tongue is causing? Am I a a person who somewhat here and there harnesses selfish ambition as we saw at the end of chapter 3 just last week. At every point, James chapter 1 verse 14 has rung true for us. As we, we hear James give heavy exhortation against those mindsets and sins. Every true Christian that received James' letter 
Every true Christian that reads this epistle, every true Christian sitting here hearing the sermons, hears each of those and realizes I need to be more vicious against that sin. I need to be more zealous in my repentance here. I'm thankful for the word. It's cutting me and bringing me to repentance in this way. That's very good. James chapter 1 verse 14 says that each of us, every person is is tempted by our own sinful hearts being lusted and desiring after things on the outside. Of course, that happens to all of us. And yet tonight, James does not so much speak to the common Christian who all struggles a little bit with each of the things that we have spoken about so far through the epistle. Tonight, James believes that there is a, there is a, a, a people within the church. There is, a, there is enough people that it, um, that it is causing troubles within the church, quarrels, fights, church splits, arguments, members' meetings when chairs go flying and bottles hit each other in the head, the really fun ones. Those sorts of members' meetings are occurring because... On apostolic authority, James believes that there is adulteresses among the congregation. There is a body of people, there is is enough of them in the congregation that are unconverted, that are worldly, that are enemies of God, and it is them that are bringing their unmortified inward desires outward into the congregation to cause the kind of trouble that James says they are seeing here tonight. There were some then, and there are some here tonight, who this, all these things that we've spoken about as we're making our way through this epistle, does not just spark up in you a, a part of your heart, a part of your life, a part of your spiritual life that you need to do better at killing, better at walking in righteousness. That's not the case. There's some here tonight as there was some there in James's day, who this defines your inner life. This defines who you are and the whole reason that you sit here and play religion is because you are in fact not a converted person. So that you, chapter one, you despise God for allowing trials into your life. You despise the wisdom that comes from those trials, preferring an easier life. You hear but never do the word, chapter one. You manipulate your relationships for money and for power, chapter 2. Your only claim to salvation is that you claim to have faith and yet your life completely abandons and betrays that claim to have faith because your life is not filled with works to the living God. You are without signs that that faith is producing works and you are without signs that that faith is exhibiting a control over your tongue. Maybe you can keep a lid on it when you're among the congregation and play holy a little bit, but there are some among us, as there were some among James's congregation that were spread out because of the persecution, who their tongues in every part of their private and public life was causing warfare. There are those people whose only interest in church is what they can get out of promoting themselves through selfish ambition, who live out this earthly, carnal, demonic wisdom that he spoke about at the end of chapter 3. There are some in his congregation, there are some tonight who that defines you. And very differently from the command that James has continually made to repent and, and, and turn and, and realize the command of God and know that you are saved. And therefore, on the basis of that salvation, on the basis of having the Holy Spirit walk in greater holiness, rather, tonight, he brings down the prophetical woe and he calls them out as adulterers and whores in a spiritual 
sense. Look at what he says in in verse chapter 2. He says, uh, why is there quarrels? Well, because your inward passions are at war. That war is not settled down, and so it spreads out from a local, personal, inward warfare to a community, to a church, to your family. You do not have fences up, and so the weeds grow out from you. Verse 2, what is the passions that are war within you? At war within you, verse 2, you desire but you don't have, so you murder. That could be literal or it could be metaphorical or it could simply be, which I think is the case, that he's simply saying the war that is within you, the desires that are not mortified or killed or brought to the cross of Christ will have an end point. Everybody likes to claim that they've got just a little bit of sin in their life, but like a man standing underneath an enormous boulder on a very steep hill, they assure themselves they'd be able to stop at any point they want. And James is telling them, if you harbor hatred, you will become a murderer. Do not think that you can allow your lusts and your covetousness to grow without getting to the point of sexual immorality in your lived life or murder in your lived life, or abortion, or lying, or stealing, or thieving. Sin is like pregnancy, we have said, from chapter 1, verse 14. It is, it is okay, maybe those first few weeks, those first few stages, to try and ignore it and pretend that it is internally concealed, and yet time will grow and, and show that sin to be all the more conspicuous, so that people will see it, so that it will become more obvious. And in the birthing of that sin into your life, it brings about death. This is the imagery of James to sin. You desire, you do not have, so you murder. Sin has an end point. It will take you towards that end point. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Is this not our lived experience even among the true Christians? That we, have, we see what we want, we see other people's lives, their relationships, their marriages, their families, their possessions, and we want that. And it's not enough simply that we want what they have. Our hearts start putting us against that person, despising them, being angry at them, quarreling against them. And in the unconverted, in the church, that always amounts to fights, divisions, and quarrels. He then go on in in verse 2. You don't have because you don't ask. So, So already we've seen the cause of the quarrels, the cause of the fights is your inward passions. But here is why, in the false convert, those things continue to rule and dominate their life. Verse 2. I'm a a well-meaning Christian. Sorry, verse uh, uh, end of verse uh, 2. A well-meaning Christian might say to a false convert, well, this sin is ravaging your life, and uh, this this issue is destroying your, your, your church life. Haven't you prayed about it? And of course, every false convert can say, yeah, I've prayed about it. It's not happening. Maybe, maybe God's fine with me doing this or, or come up with some other self-loathing excuse. He says, no, you do pray, but you're praying with the wrong motivation. So we'll say at the end of verse 2, of course, you don't have because you don't ask. You don't have this victory over sin. You don't have the things that you desire you're fighting about them because you're not asking God for them. But also, those who are asking, you're not receiving, because every, every false convert, every adulterous spiritual person is going to put their hand up and say, I did ask God about this, to take away this desire, to give me what I wanted. And James is quick to say, of course you're asking, but you're asking with adulterous, double-minded hearts. You are asking 
So that once God agrees to your prayer, so that once God gives you what you request, you will then take up whatever blessing he's poured out in your lap and use it for your own worldly passions to feed the very sin that you ought to be killing. So James says, verse 3, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He uses this phrase, to spend it, which is the same phrase that is used in the parable that Jesus tells of the prodigal son, that he took all of the blessings of the father, the inheritance of the father, and he went out into the far country and on women and on booze and on parties. He spent everything lavishly right down to the last coin so that he was impoverished. The same picture, that we, just like the prodigal son, the false convert, will will ask God for blessings, maybe a relationship so that you can exhaust your sinful sexual desires, or maybe a point of influence in the church, or maybe a point of influence among people, so that you can use it for your own self-glory. This is very common. The false convert in the congregation of God is able to ask for the same things that the true Christians are asking for, but ask wrongly in order to multiply their sins. Verse (coughs) 4, verse 4 is where he gives them the phrase, he goes from symptoms, he goes like a good doctor, he's gone from assessing their life, speaking about their symptoms, you, you look like this, you're allowing your sin to grow out, there's quarrels, there's fights, uh, this is what I think is happening. He goes from that to a diagnosis, and the prognosis is not good. He says that this person who lives like that, who, whose, whose life is defined by this kind of inner uh, lack of inner battle against sin and continual pouring out of their passions through their life, he calls that person terminal. The case is not good. They are on their way to an eternal death because they are adulterers against the covenant Lord of Scripture. He says in verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, the the language of adulterers is, is, is kept and saved for a certain group of people. It is not true that simply any sinner, any non-Christian, is an adulterer. Don't get that in your mindset as if any non-Christian is also called by Scripture an adulterer. That's not the case. The people who the Scriptures and the prophets and Jesus and James and the other apostles, the people who they reserve that word adultery for are those who claim to be in covenant with God have some experience of that covenant lived out in their life. They'll call themselves Christians. They'll they'll say that they're in this relationship with God that is akin to marriage. That's where the idea is coming from. And yet they live like sinners. It's a worse sin than simply being a non-Christian. To be a hypocrite, to be an adulterer, to be a friend with the world while claiming to be a friend of God is, is a worse sin than simply not hearing or rejecting the gospel of Jesus. James has already said it, that they will receive a harsher judgment. Jesus said it in Mark chapter 12. Uh, other writers will say it, that the greater you hear, the writer of the Hebrews will say it as well, the more you hear, the more you claim, the more you experience, the more of the covenant of grace that you are surrounded by while unconverted will, as Jonathan Edwards says, earn for you a hotter and hotter hell while you lie to God and others in your life. 
So they are unsaved, they are rebellious, adulterers in the midst of the church. And James seeks to call them out, not by name. He's not seeing them face to face. He's allowing the Holy Spirit to do the work. As he writes down the the symptoms and the prognosis of those in this state, he trusts that the Holy Spirit, by the, the preaching and the teaching of the elders in those churches, they will apply and they will hear, and those who are truly God's chosen people will respond in repentance to what is said. This language of adultery is uh, common throughout the Old Testament prophets. It's, it's found for us in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4, and uh, verse 10, and then verse 16 through 17. Isaiah says this, as he is sent to Israel at a time of their idolatry, what God will call adultery. He says, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He is calling his own covenant people, Jerusalem. He is calling them Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is worse than, right? He's he's using some divine smack talk. He's calling the holy people the least holy cities, Everybody knows that Sodom and Gomorrah were an ash heap after God burned them to smithereens because of their homosexual lusts and sexual immorality. So how does it feel when God says to you, as a good synagogue, temple-going Jew, that you are Sodom and Gomorrah? He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Isaiah 57 verse 3 says, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. God has no qualms, no issues with calling an idolatrous half-hearted or double-hearted, double-minded generation who claims to be his followers, adulterers and children of the loose woman. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 20, he says, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 38 He says, and I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. Or Ezekiel chapter 23 verse 45. Then I said of her who was worn out by adultery. Imagine that. Somebody committing so much adultery, they're just exhausted. God says that that is what the spiritual adulterer against the covenant of God is like. He says, I will say to her, now they will continue to use her as a whore, even her, for they have gone into her as men go into a prostitute. They, have, they went into Oholah and Oholahab, lewd women, but righteous men shall pass judgment on them with the sentence of adulteresses and with the sentence of women who shed blood because they are adulteresses, the blood is on their hands. And one last one in Hosea. Hosea chapter 1 verse 2. He says to Hosea the prophet, go, he says, marry a prostitute and then you'll know what it's like being the husband of Israel. He says, go, 
Take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Towards the end of that uh, married life, as Hosea would cry out to God that he is sick of having a wife that he pleases and provides for and serves, who keeps on running away and selling herself in the marketplace, God says, now you know how I feel. Those who claim the covenant of God and try and reinterpret it on their own terms and live life the worldly way the Bible calls adulterous people. James is not using this as a way to rebuke Christians. Nowhere in Scripture will you find Christians spoken of, even in the process of sin, as enemies of God. You are not an enemy of God when you have been reconciled by the gracious, justifying blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, our God, King, Savior, and Ruler. When you've been justified by Him, and when by faith you've been united to Him and cleansed of sin, never, even in your worst moments of temptation and sin and backsliding, will God ever consider you an enemy. And yet there are some here tonight who on the outside will try and look like genuine Christians, and yet God seeing the heart will call them, maybe call you an adulterer. Look at verse 4 at the the end when he calls them friendship with God and enemies, uh, sorry, friends of the world and enemies of God. In the the, uh, first century, this language of friendship was much more than like, being a friend means absolutely nothing when you with the click of a button can become friends with a celebrity from Hollywood or become friends with somebody that lives in Pakistan that you've never met. Right? Friendship is somewhat cheapened by our age of social media, is what I'm saying. And yet in the first century, to speak of this language that James has of friendship is this life companion bondage that they would be in together. They would share everything together. They would uh, promise each other financial uh, assurance and benefactorship. They would support one another, have their houses open to one another, share everything in their life together so only the worst of liars and betrayers would be able to both at one time be such a life-bound friend to one person who is an enemy of another that they also try and entertain and call friend. This idea of trying to get the benefits out of both worlds, whatever God can give me with as much as I can get from the world. The question simply has to be, if they're an enemy of God, if they are trying to be a friend of the world, if you are trying to be a friend of the world, what are you doing in church? Why why does James speak in this way of people who are in the church who are enemies of God? What, What are they doing here? What are they getting out of this? Well, of course, what they're getting out of is is the desire to to fool others and in fact fool themselves. Many people want everything God can give them. They want everything that God alone can give them without wanting God himself. Don't believe the, 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 the false presentation of the gospel that goes something like this. Wouldn't you rather be in heaven than hell? Yeah, sure. Wouldn't you rather be forgiven than condemned? Yeah, sure. Wouldn't you rather God be your friend than your enemy? Wouldn't you like to live your life with peace and a, and a settled conscience and believing that you're going to have eternal life and never having sin against you? Would you like those things? Yes, of course you would. Well, then you can have them in Jesus. Come along, we'll consider you a Christian. Every unregenerate person wants those things. The problem is that they want those things outside and without and in rejection to the Lord Jesus Christ. They want peace. 
They want their sin to go away. They want to feel uh, fine living in their life. They want to be sure that they're not going to go to hell when they die. They want to feel like God is their friend and their benefactor, and yet they cannot swallow the message of repentance by faith alone in Jesus. So James speaks to a people like that in the church that he had once pastored. He speaks in verse 5 of the jealousy that God has over our spirits. It's a bit difficult to see exactly what he's uh, trying to say because he, it seems like he makes a quotation. And of course, in the original Greek, there's no such punctuation marks of quotation. But it seems like he's making a quotation of a Bible verse that does not exist. So probably what he's saying is that the whole Old Testament scriptures bear witness to what I'm about to say. It's sort of a general theme or topic and then he quotes Proverbs. He says, Does not, do you think that it's for, a, for no purpose that the scripture says, he, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says in Proverbs, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The reality is that that God has, um, uh, has said in the Old Testament, this, this theme comes through heavily, that, 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 that God has made us and that sin has come in and stolen us away and has turned ourselves away from him, that each of us by nature are born into a state of hatred to God, enmity to God, living away from God, against his law, despising him. And yet it is that, it is that symbol of this, this pursuing man who loves a woman with a jealousy, that he, he goes and pursues her and brings her back to himself. This is, again, from Hosea and the Old Testament scriptures, the picture of the grace of God. It is a pursuing love that finds us and brings us home. And so it says that God earnestly yearns jealously over the spirit that he has put within us. Your life source, the, the very image of God that you bear is something that God desires to have for himself. He desires a whole life returned to him. And so, and so the, the, the reason that James is bringing this up is to say, do you think then that if, if you've been converted and that in Christ you've received redemption, do you think that there's a type of Christianity that says God desires my whole being and when he achieves that through Christ, he'll get one tiny little sliver of my heart and the rest of me will live worldly in sin? Does that make sense to absolutely anybody who is a husband, maybe a father, if you've ever, ever had a deep and meaningful relationship with another person, would you be okay with that? How less God is okay with that kind of mindset. <laughs> he is jealous over our spirit and demands a whole of life return. We see in verse 6 that he starts to shine the glimmer of hope. God's grace, <coughs> God's grace in verse 6 is given to the humble. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I love how he starts verse 6. But he gives more grace. How much grace? More. No matter how much you've sinned, the issue that you are outside of Christ and still living your worldly ways and still living opposed to the, eth uh, the ethics of the church and the teaching of the Bible is not because you earnestly tried to get in, Right back to verse 2 and 3. Because you earnestly prayed for salvation, but God said, sorry, the credit card is bouncing. There's just not enough grace for you. There is no sinner on earth who, who is outside of the Lord Jesus Christ who will go to hell or is currently on their way to hell. Good news for you, by the way. Because God doesn't have enough grace. 
That's never the reason. The reason that people are not saved, the reason that people are not justified, the reason that people do not receive that manifold, plentiful, overflowing grace of God, which is always more and greater than our sins, always. Wherever you're at tonight, whatever you've done in your past, there is no such thing as being more sinful than God is gracious. The reason, though, we don't receive God's grace is not because he ran out, but because we were not humble. We were not willing to receive the grace that is given only to the humble. He says he opposes the proud. This is, the, this is military language, just by the way. When, a, when an army would surround a town or when they would uh, 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 get all of their forces and march against a city to destroy them, that was the, the same phrase in the Greek that he's using here. The opposition, the, the mounting of an opposition to a person, that is what God does. The leader of literally billions of angels who he doesn't need because he can destroy you with but a word, that God sets up all of his forces against those who are proud in his presence and reject his son, especially those who claim they have received his son, live their life in the church in a worldly way, polluting the pure bride of Christ, to those people God opposes them. But, verse 6, he gives more grace. He always gives more grace, and yet this grace is not a, an ineffective or passive grace. It has the effects that we read from verse 7 through to verse 10. So that's where we're going to end ourselves out tonight with a consideration of what this grace does to us when it brings genuine repentance to you tonight if you are still outside of Christ, living as a hypocrite and an adulterer against the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, first of all, submit to God. I think that all of chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 comes under this general umbrella term. Submit yourselves to God. James 4 verse 7 reads, Submit yourselves to God. Everything else flows from that. He says submit because, you know, because we need that humility. This is where that humility starts coming in. He says submit because every person wants, who is not in Christ and yet is in the church wants to tell themselves that they are their own Lord. They are their own authoritative word. Their law is what goes. Their terms is what God will expect. He will have as much of my heart and as much of my life as I desire. And he'll be happy with it. My life is my decision. My ways are my choice. My life is under my own lordship. And yet submitting means realizing that that is all false. It is recognizing that God himself, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, enthroned on the throne, he is Lord. He is God. He is sovereign. He is authoritative. You are not. It doesn't matter how many applications or demands you make to the throne of God to change his covenant terms. If you live in your sins, you will die in your sins. Jesus will make you holy in this life. That term on the gospel is never going to be compromised. You are not ultimate. This is the very definition of sin, is the rejection of the lordship of Christ. It is no surprise that therefore James starts there in repentance, in conversion, in a false convert becoming a true convert, in somebody denying and and misusing the grace of God to then be overcome with the grace of God. The first sign is submitting to God in humility, accepting that he's the one who made us. He's the one who then came into this sin-riddled world to redeem us. He is the one and the only one who lived a perfect life. 
It's him who went before the Father and took all of our spiritual adultery, took all of our sin, all of our law-breaking, all of our rejection, all of our rebellion into his person, into his flesh, and destroyed under the wrath of God was Jesus, punished in our place, treated as a sinner in the place of sinners so that sinners can be treated as righteous in Christ. That's what he did. Having been resurrected on the third day, he was then enthroned and seated at the Father's right hand. From there, he rules, commanding you, repent. Submit to God. Submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who destroys your pride, who shatters your own empire, who who flattens your own kingdom. Do not sit here and pretend to be under his grace while you reject his Lordship in your life. It is the very definition of whoredom. Pride cannot hear that. Pride cannot submit to God's way. Instead, it demands that he reinterprets his covenant and he refuses to do it. So step one, submit to God. And secondly, or the first sort of sub-point of this overarching point in verse seven, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's, there's all sorts of uh, obviously wacky ways that this can be interpreted, or maybe you've heard explained the, the beginnings of some kind of wild theology around spiritual warfare and how to wrestle the devil, because technically that's the, that's the literal meaning of this language, wrestle the devil in resistance, throw it all out, put it in a blender, put it at the bottom of the bin. None of that mockery is appropriate. What, what James means when he says submit to God, and then resist the devil, is simply stop submitting to the devil. What an insult to hear this, that if you're going to come to Jesus, the terms is okay, but you need to stop living as an obedient slave to the master of your soul whose name is Satan. Stop submitting to him. Temptations come, you give over easily. Lies come, look at all that he can give you, look at the pleasures that the world can offer, look at what sin can provide for you, like Jesus in the desert, do not submit to the devil's words, to his laws, to his ethics, or to his temptations. If you are submitted to God by faith, then you are in a process, in the, in the function, in the status of resisting the devil. Only Spirit-born faith in the heart is able to actually enact resistance against the devil. All else is a lying religious fake. So he says, submit to God. He says, resist to the devil. And he says, draw near. (coughs) Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He uses this language of, uh, of, of especially in his context to mostly Jewish Christians or so-called Christians. He's using the language of, of Old Testament uh, uh, worship. As you would approach the temple or common throughout the Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers and, and those law, law books and, and also used in the book of Hebrews, the language of drawing near was the act of cleansing yourself and coming before God in worship. This is the call of God. Draw Near, however filthy you are, however sinful you have been, draw near. Come back like the prodigal son. Stop where you are. Stop your life of adultery, your life of foolishness, and your life of sin. You are an enemy, and yet God is calling you to come to Him. Don't hear that you're not an enemy. You are an enemy. He's simply inviting you to draw near. You're an enemy that is invited to the feast of the supper of the Lamb. 
You're an enemy that is invited to come and benefit from the murder and the slaughtering and the sacrifice and the death of the only perfect man and God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're an enemy, but God gives more grace. Come and draw near in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will take humble, uh, it will take humility to submit to him in this way, and yet draw near in the name of Jesus Christ. It will take humility to leave your own good works aside. They're nothing. It will take humility to recognize that you are filthy, naked, and poor, but draw near. Draw near through the Lord Jesus Christ and give up the life of whoredom. He then says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This language is, is, is him, again, using that ceremonially uh, uh, used language from the Old Testament to speak over the Christian. He's, he's used just like Psalm 24 did. He used, just like Isaiah chapter 1 did, the language of both hands and heart. Stop what you are doing in your life that is sinful. Each of you know what that is if you're outside of Christ, committed to sin in your life. It, it could be sexual sin. It could be the sin of theft in some way. It could be financial sins. It could be manipulative sins. It could be abusive sins. It could be relational sins. Whatever it is, cease your doing and cleanse your heart also. It is not enough to try and work to the stopping of your sin if your heart is not being cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And this is the immediate question. You are asking me to be cleansed of something that is so deep I cannot find its root, to tear out a tree that is in my heart that I cannot find the bottom of. How is this to be done? How is one to be cleansed as a sinner and purified if they are a double-minded person? And again, the humility of submitting to God demands that you find the answer in Jesus alone. Only the blood of Jesus, which was shed for his enemies, only the body of Jesus, which was broken for adulterers and sinners, is enough to cleanse your heart. And this is a part of the Christian gospel. Not merely that you'll have your ticket punched for heaven, but that this very life that you are living will be transformed. You will find your heart purified. You will find your conscience cleansed. You will find an abiding peace in your life and a victory and a dominion over sin, which will be dead to you because you died in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and be cleansed. God gives more grace. Come and be purified because God gives more grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. This is, the, this is Joel Osteen's favorite Bible verse. This is on all the gospel tracts we hand out. This is on your invitation cards to church. This is what we put over the front of our door. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He uses this language, be wretched, or another word there could be ruined. Cry out in the recognition of your ruinous state, your desolation. Mourn, he says. Lament over your sins. As if, as if there was one who was, who, was, who was coming back after a long journey, maybe yourself, and, and you've seen smoke in the sky, and you've heard the fire engines, and, and you're, you're praying for the blessed soul that just lost all that they have, and you arrive home to find your entire home, belongings and family, burned to the ground. As you would turn around and see your home drop to your knees, that very emotion, that moment there in the heart that, that bewails a total impoverishment and a nothing but loss, that 
cry out is what God commands through the Apostle James to have for your soul when you recognize that you are a spiritual adulterer. When you start realizing that your hell will be all the hotter because you pretended to be a Christian. When you realize that you've been living in the church and yet living like the devil, like an enemy in the Trojan horse inside the church. When you realize that, that you have been spurning and using in vain and abusing the only thing that can save you, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you. When you realize that you stand empty-handed, blood on your hands, adultery in your past, nothing but eternal condemnation in hell to pay, you will bewail, you will mourn, and you will cry over yourself, I am wretched. This is why he says, don't turn into some kind of light and flippant way to distract yourself. Don't go and find a substance. Don't go and try and spark up a conversation after this sermon. Don't try and distract yourself in Netflix and find a way to numb the pain that you felt driving to the bottom of your heart. He says, if that is you, wail, be wretched, mourn and weep. Be distraught as you ought to be over your spiritual case. The fact is that every single person will wail and weep and mourn over their soul because of their sin. Every single person will do it. If you've been converted, you wept and you wailed and you cried over your sin in the moment of your conversion when you realized your wretchedness and gave your all to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not do that in this life, you will mourn and wail and weep when you see the lake of fire that you will be cast into. You will mourn and wail and weep at some point. Let it be tonight when God gives more grace. On that last day, when you are condemned by God's just calling and his condemnation, you will not be able to turn to James chapter 4 and say, but you give more grace. That grace expires when he returns. That grace expires on your deathbed. This is the day to be saved. This right now is the moment to receive that grace. Be be mournful, wail and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Don't go about giddy and joyful and, and, and foolish and try to console your heart with comedy and with frivolity, but let that laughter be turned to mourning. Uh, I'm convinced that there is no people that are more light and frivolous and uh, not a deep sense of joviality, but a cheap sense of chippiness in the church of God. There is no one who is more like that than the person that has not reckoned with their own state before God and had an overwhelming gravitas given to their soul by the grace of God poured out. It says, let that, let that joviality be turned into mourning. Let your dancing become your, your, your fasting. Your mourning should overcome that into gloom. And therefore, verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. God wants you to have no joy, no happiness, no peace, no comfort, no good night's rest until you are at peace with him in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to give you no light pat on the back, no joy, no comfort or peace while you are outside of Jesus. He doesn't want you to source any sense of peace before God and his judgment, peace to face death. He doesn't want you to find that in any such thing as as therapy or or, or counseling or or new ageism or or substances or or, or self-made religion. He, He wants to give you no joy until you are found in Jesus Christ and in him alone, saying, all that I have is Jesus. All that I have is Christ. In him alone is my salvation. And there he floods on you 
as one who has been humbled enough by his spirit and the word to come to him in submission, to resist the devil, to draw near in the purity of hand and heart with faith and repentance, wholly throwing yourself into that one ark of salvation to save you from the flood of the wrath of God, Jesus Christ. When you do that, you are humbled. And to the humble, God gives more grace. And therefore, he says, be humbled and allow God to do the exaltation. He will exalt you through salvation. He will exalt you through being used by him in your life and having victory over sin. And he will exalt you at the last day when he gives to you eternal life and unfading crown and a glorious eternity in glory. Let's pray. Father God, it is James' pen that comes to convict and to question and to demand repentance of false converts, those who, who, who have every reason to, to want to lie to themselves because they know themselves out of Jesus. They, they have every recognition that they are fake, that they are false, that they are faulty, and yet they keep up the act in order to promote self, in order to be ambitious in the church, or even, Lord, those who don't realize it. And maybe for the first time now, they're coming to a stark recognition that it is their house that is alight. It is their home that is in flames. It is their soul that is hanging over the, the pit of an eternal fire with no remedy. Father God, I pray that those who tonight are realizing that their faith, their works, their religion, and their Christianity is false and fake, and that they are adulterers, I pray, Lord God, that you would convict and do not simply convict and make them feel horrible and, and worse and go home and weep and wail to no avail, but Lord, send them home. Or even right now, as we finish off our service, give them faith now to rest and rely on the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that any in this room that are outside of Jesus, that are enemies of God, that are friends of the world, that love to live their lives in as much sin as they can and, and sprinkle it with a bit of religion to make themselves feel better. Lord God, would you give to them tonight before they leave this room salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. All of those, Lord, who have come to know you, who have come to be justified in the Lord Jesus Christ, would you spur us on into love and into good works? And as James will say at the end of the book, may we be those wise people who win souls. May we be those who turn to those around us in struggling fear, in, in concern about their salvation. And may we one to another bless and encourage one another in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Father God, we pray that in this midst you would do a great work of salvation, that in this midst you would do a great work of sanctification to your own glory, because it is for the glory of God that we pray, and it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everybody said, Amen.